Every now and then, even I get a little nervous when we have somebody on the podcast, someone whose work is so well-reputed, so well-known, so influential, that I get a little wary of even asking that person to come be on our silly little thing where we talk about what orcas could fight Liam Neeson. And that was the case for today's movie, Gangs of New York. I love this movie. It was originally one of the movies that I considered for the second film we ever did on HATM back in 2018. We ended up going with Lincoln instead. But it is a movie that I've always enjoyed watching. It's not my favorite Scorsese film. That's going to always be Goodfellas. But it might be my favorite single performance ever. And that's by Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher. I, I just cannot take my eyes off this guy in this film. I just love this movie. It's such a fun movie to watch and to look at and to envision. I love so much about this movie. It's not perfect. Uh, a few movies are. But it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun as a historian. So when I started thinking about adding this to the HATM podcast, I reached out on Twitter. I was like, who should we do this with? And every one of you said one person. Tyler Anbinder. Tyler Anbinder. Tyler Anbinder. It's like, there's no way Tyler Anbinder is going to want to sit and talk to me, resident doofus, here on Historians of the Movies podcast. But I reached out to him, and he actually, no, he reached out to me. He said, yeah, I'll do it. And I spent two hours yesterday recording the podcast. I'm recording this morning over some Cuban coffee. And I must tell you, one of the absolute best things, and I know Twitter is a hot mess right now, social media, the world is a hot mess right now, is how it has allowed us the ability to connect with genuine, good human beings. And I sat here yesterday talking with the conversation that you're about to hear of this fabulous human being. Uh, Tyler, I hope you're, you're, if you're listening right now, I apologize if I'm, I'm embarrassing you. But for him to take the time to talk about this movie that he actually had a hand in helping to create, he uh, helped to provide some historical insight on the creation of this film, which you're going to listen to and hear him talk about today. And he's been talking about this movie for the last 20 years. And I thought for certain, there's no way he'd want to talk about this. And that's what I get for judging or making assumptions, because the conversation you're about to hear is just this awesome discussion about Irish immigration, about the Civil War, about nativism, about how all of these things apply to our society today, about finding things in the archive, and of course, about other scholarship that you can find out there as well that is influential and important. And I am just so grateful to Dr. Ann Binder for taking the time and talking to me. What a gracious man uh, to talk to me and talk to us about his career, not only in hopping on podcasts, but about teaching others. I Hope she doesn't mind, but my great friend, Lindsay Chervinsky, before I got on, she's like, you got to talk to him. He's the best guy. And for someone like Lindsay to say this meant the world to me. And I was so excited to talk to you today. So I hope you know that I've got the biggest smile on my face knowing what you're about to hear. This is such a great conversation. If you love Gangs of New York, if you love the city of New York, if you love podcasts, if you love discussions about movies and films, I think you're really going to love this conversation today. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I am New York and it is time. <laughs> I cannot New York. I kept trying to think about something waiting to say before we jump in here. Guys, sit back and relax. 
It's time for Gangs of New York on History to the Movies podcast. Tyler Inbinder, how are you today? I'm great, I'm, and I'm excited to be on uh, Historians at the Movies. I've I've watched or listened to quite a few of the podcasts and learned a lot in them, so I'm honored to be participating uh, myself. I uh, well, first of all, thank you for listening in, and also thank you more than that for not uh, for not running away after hearing our, uh, <laughs> our the, <laughs> the zaniness that some of these podcasts can can go. I was. Uh, one of my favorite pods that we've done is actually with uh, with Kathleen Ballou. She did she came on to do Con Air, and for her, you know, she's dealing with this very heavy, straightforward works with like white paramilitary and nationalism things like that. And it was so nice to be able to just sit and talk to her about this crazy Nicolas Cage movie. I think maybe sometimes people hear these movies and think, oh, we're going to sit and talk about very heavy <laughs> heavy things. And I don't. Boy, we she and I ended up talking more about where to get the best pecan pie in Tennessee. So yeah, I, and I was excited. Um, I, I love this movie, and you have a very real relationship with this movie in ways that a lot of the scholars uh, don't. And I was just asking you, you know, to asking you before we got on about you know if you ever get tired of talking about Gangs of New York, and I suppose not because you're you're here to talk about it with us today. Yeah, no, I don't get tired of talking about it in part because. It's really a fascinating movie, and, and I mean, every minute of it has something interesting going on, especially from a historian's point of view. And then, you know, it's uh, I've been really lucky if it were not for that movie. Very few people would know my Five Points book, but as a result of the movie, you know, thousands of people do, and it keeps, you know, it's been out more than 20 years, and it still sells thousands of copies a year, and that's got to be 90% because of Gangs of New York. So I'm grateful that the movie made made my made my work uh, something that lots of people would want to read. Well, I am I am grateful to talk to you about your work in this film today. And you've got you've got a new book coming up is March 2024. I'm spoiling it already. I was just uh, the book the book is called uh was Plentiful yes. Country is that still the working title or that is still the title. Uh, Plentiful Country the Great Famine and the Making of Irish New York. And it's a, it's a look at the famine immigrants and, and focusing on how the famine immigrants managed to climb the socioeconomic ladder uh, so successfully. So the, the basic premise of the book is that the, the way historians have looked at the famine immigrants as, as people who are kind of fated to remain at, in the bottom of America's socioeconomic ladder is just not true. And that previously it's been impossible to, to know whether that was true or not because you couldn't track the famine immigrants because they all tended to have the same names, you know, right? There's just so many, so many Michael Sullivan's and so many <laughs> Thomas Kelly's. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of them. Sure. So it was impossible to know what happened to them. And what I do with the book is I use this very unique document set, the, the records of the Emigrant Savings Bank from New York. And the Emigrant Savings Bank required every depositor to give a very long, detailed list of biographical information when they opened an account. And so this was not only your name and your address and your occupation, which every 
bank took down in those days, but also the name of your spouse, your spouse's maiden name, where exactly in Ireland you were born. So not just Ireland, not just the county, not just the parish, but even down to the little hamlet. And then the name of the ship you came to America on, the date it arrived in America, your parents' names and where they're located, your siblings' names and where they are located, your children's names and and where they're located. So you can use all that information combined with what's on Ancestry.com and in the census records and so forth to trace with confidence what happened to thousands of famine immigrants after they got off their ships and landed in America. And so what I've done with, uh, in, in combination with a couple of economic historians is created a database of thousands of famine immigrants. And then, and the, the database has, you know, what they were doing and where they were living definitely every 10 years, but often every year through many decades. And, and we posted the, the data online so anybody can look at it and see whether they think I'm right and, and, test our hypotheses. And, and so, and we got out of it an article in the American Historical Review that that's kind of more scholarly. And then this book is aimed more at a mass audience. And so is written for, for just everyday Americans and, and, and people in Ireland too, hopefully. And, and the stories are just so fascinating. It's just endlessly fascinating stories about people, how they struggled to succeed in America and, and did so much more often than you would have imagined. So I am right now in a bit of a kick, scholarly-wise, just reading a whole bunch of immigration histories. I just read Sarah McNamara's uh, great new book about Ybor City, which uh, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that here in Florida, there's this tremendous Cuban history here. And uh, Carly Goodman wrote a book recently, and she's about to come on the podcast uh, here soon. Of course, oh, it, great. You know, I went to Minnesota, so you know the great Erica Lee is over there and doing what was over there and just doing no, amazing she's work. Left. You know, yeah, she's left, um, and uh, you know she's obviously I can't say enough amazing things about it. But the stories you get, migration stories, and you know my grandfather passed uh, a couple years ago, and the family asked me as you know to come back and give the eulogy, and of course I had yet to defend my dissertation, but at the time, and you know I, I had I have since then. But I still think that that eulogy might be the single most important speech or just, uh, you know, scholarship I've ever done because what I ended up doing was tracing back and I'd been working on our family's ancestry into Kentucky for years and years and years. And I'd finally made it across the pond back to England where my family originates. And um, it's fascinating to me these stories of coming to a place and maybe starting with nothing or, you know, why, why would you leave a place that you've been for a time immemorial? And get on a rotting ship, or and to go to a place where you have, where you know no one. I, I'm fascinated with these stories and how people survive and then build, as you were saying, into something. So I'm excited about this book that you've got coming out, and you know, we and we see this in the film as well, right? This this we have obviously immigration takes is a huge uh, aspect of gangs in New York. Anti-immigration is a huge aspect of gangs in New York. I'm in Florida, as we were talking a little bit earlier, and I hear about immigration. Like most Americans, daily, um, the governor of New York, or excuse me, the governor of Florida here has made this a very big part of his bid for the presidency. Um, so it's it's a frustrating aspect of the things that I hear. Uh, but before we get into the film, I wanted to ask maybe if you could talk a little bit about like who you are and the work that you've done thus far. You're you're emeritus now, is that correct? 
I am. I retired in three years ago now in 2020 and was lucky enough to be able to do that and devote myself full time to writing, which I love. I got, you know, after after 30 years of teaching, um, wow. I loved my students and uh, I loved my writing and I loved teaching, but I, after 30 years, I did not love grading anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone love grading after three years of teaching? Yeah. Grading became hard. So I took advantage and uh, was able to retire. And, you know, I'm lucky that there's that publishers are willing to pay me decent money to write books. And so I figured I would do that full time. And so far, so good. But in terms of my my kind of writing background, I, you know, I worked with some very good uh, teachers and scholars over the year when I was an undergraduate at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and really was inspired to become a historian by a guy named Clarence Walker who worked on African-American history and he was a super inspiring teacher. And I had no intention of being a history major or going into history uh, when I went to college, but I took a course with him my first semester and I switched out of economics and into history. (laughs) And I worked with another great historian at Wesleyan, Rosalind Rosenberg, who is an American women's historian. And she was also very influential in my decision to go to grad school. And, and then I went to Columbia and worked with Eric Foner. And I have to say, there can't be a better model for a, a scholar and a mentor than, than Eric. He's just... Uh, wonderful in every way as, you know, as a model in terms of a writer, you know, he worked really closely with me and all his grad students on writing. He was the kind of person who would line edit your writing, you know, and you can imagine someone as famous as him, you would think, oh, what are they going to, why are they going to bother doing that? And, but that was what he did. And, you know, he taught me so many things about how to be a good writer that way. I was lucky in the sense that I got to Columbia in 1984, which was the, I was the first group of students who went to Columbia knowing he was there because he had just gotten there a little before that. So it was a big entering class of people to work with him. And so I was lucky to kind of get in at the beginning before he, I think, got over, could have gotten overwhelmed with students. But from what I hear from the younger students, he was still that kind of mentor to them as well. So Another person I worked with at Columbia who was uh, important to me was Eric McKittrick, who is probably not that well remembered anymore, but wrote wrote an important book on Reconstruction, then wrote a book on the the Federalist era. But uh, he was also a great role model in terms of writing and was someone who uh, I did my master's thesis with him. And he was the kind of person who also worked very carefully and taught you how to write and how to be a scholar. And so I thought that was, he was a great model in that regard too. You ended up working a lot specifically on Irish immigration. Was there, was a reason why you were drawn specifically to Irish immigration in particular, say versus, you know, that of any other place? Well, there were, there were two factors. So my first graduate seminar with Foner was this course on the coming of the civil war. And there were as many students as there were weeks in the class. And so he assigned <laughs> he assigned each week one student had to kind of be in charge of that week and introduce the the readings and kind of present a historiographic overview of that week's subject. And there were you know, lots of people who had become 
very famous scholars in that seminar. It's kind of daunting to think of in, in retrospect. And I was pretty uh, overawed by all that group. So, uh, and so he would go through, he went through the syllabus from the beginning to the end and said, all right, this week, who wants to do it? And all these hands would shoot up. And so, and I would shoot up my hand because I see all these <laughs> other people shooting up their hands. So I figured, oh, they must know more about that than me. So he got kind of to the end of the syllabus and the, there was a week on nativism. Mm-hmm. And so he says, all right, who wants to do that? And there aren't many of us left. And, and, Everybody looks around. They clearly don't want to do this subject because <laughs> most of the weeks of the class were very admirable people. You know, week after week on aboli- these abolitionists, those abolitionists, mm-hmm. these Republicans, Liberty Party, Free Soil Party. And they get to the nativists and nobody wants to do that. So I was like, OK, I'll do that. And so that was how I got interested in nativism as a as a political topic. And so, you know, I read that stuff really carefully and I had to to give a presentation about that. And so what you saw when you looked at that was there was nothing good written on the subject at all. I mean, just nothing. Although there were, it was the beginning of, of this big debate about nativism, because right around then, these people who were known as the new political historians, I don't know if you're familiar with them. So this no, was this. No, no, tell us. Yeah, this is so interesting because, you know, in the early 1980s, this was a big thing you would focus on in grad school. So these were people like Ron Formasano, who was in Florida, and Michael Holt at UVA, and eventually Bill Ganap at Harvard, who believed that political historians were going about it all wrong um, in terms of they were looking at, they were thinking that they could understand the motivations of voters by looking at what the political newspapers said to voters. And these historians argued that what historians said to voters didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily what motivated them to vote. And they said they were more kind of underlying things, antipathy for the other group that you were against that might motivate you more than the things that politicians were putting in their platforms and so forth. And so what they did was they were kind of pioneers of using computer statistical models and computers, right? You have to imagine when I, when I started, when I started graduate school in 1984, the IBM PC had just been introduced, right? So, so to use a computer for your scholarship in 1984, you had to go to some, building that computer, the computer science people were housed in where there would be this huge mainframe that took up an entire room and you would go sit at a terminal and you could access the mainframe that way. And what they did was they analyzed voting results and then they analyzed the demographics of each voting district and used that to try to determine what was really motivating people. And they came to the conclusion that it was more things like religious affiliation that was motivating voters in the in the pre-Civil War era than issues like slavery. They said, you know, it didn't really matter that there was a slavery issue. What mattered was if you were a Catholic, you thought that the Republicans and the Whigs hated you because you were Catholic and therefore you were going to vote Democratic. And it didn't really matter what position the Democrats took on slavery. And it really what mattered much more was the position the Democrats took on alcohol where, and, you know, the Whigs would have these temperance laws and the Democrats opposed them. And that was what made you a faithful 
Democrat. You didn't care so much about slavery one way or the other, because if you're in the North, slavery didn't really affect you, it seemed. So these historians uh, became quite prominent for a little while, arguing that slavery wasn't really that important to the political culture or the political results of the pre-Civil War years. And eventually that kind of went out of fashion. And, you know, and my my first book, which was about the Know Nothing Party, was part of that, I guess, because what I found was that the slavery issue was actually really important to the success of the Know Nothings. And the, the reason the Know Nothings did so well in the North was because they also positioned themselves as an anti-slavery party. And that once the party changed and Southerners tried to join and therefore they said, all right, we're not going to, we're going to leave slavery out of our party. <laughs> and once the Northern Know Things did that, Northerners abandoned the party and, and left for the Republicans. And that's a very short description, but, and, and that whole, that first book, which was my dissertation grew out of that week where I was the only one who volunteered to, to look at nativism in the, in the seminar. And then the other factor that was was important in terms of my getting into that was there was this uh, historian at Columbia named James James Shenton, who was who had been one of Foner's mentors when Foner was in graduate school there, along with Hofstadter. And Shenton taught immigration history. And Shenton was one of these people that they had at Columbia back then. I don't think they really have anymore. These people who could become full professors there just as great teachers and never published anything. And that was Shenton. He never published Mm. anything other than his dissertation. But he taught these huge classes that were beloved. And you would go and uh, sit in on his lectures. And there would always be in the back row a couple of older men in suits who had just who had been his students 20 or 30 years ago who were just coming to re-experience the Shenton magic. And he wow. gave these fabulous lectures, uh, just spellbinding lectures. Now the problem was, as as we learned as graduate students, is not everything Shenton said in the lectures w- was true. So you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't take notes and then use that to teach your intro uh, history 101 class, it turned <laughs> out, because you he got a lot of the facts uh, wrong. But the, the the gist of it was was right, um, which actually hopefully we'll talk about because that's that's very much what you end up with in the gangs of New York, and so it was those two things. It was bumbling into the know nothing party as a mm-hmm. subject of study, and then seeing. Uh, so I uh, with Jim Shenton, one of the courses he taught was this immigration history course, and in in 1984 there was I'm not sure there was more than two or three immigration history courses in the entire United States. Are you kidding me? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just wasn't a thing. So that inspired me too, because I sat in on that course. I didn't, I, I never, you know, to this day, I've never taken an immigration court, an immigration history course, right? I became an immigration historian, but never took a course. I was self-taught, but that seeing that course and how people were love that course uh, that also inspired me. So those are the kinds of things that got me into immigration history. I started out planning to be a political historian, but you know, by the by, nineteen ninety, political history kind of seemed to be dying. Uh, again, something that's that's probably hard for you youngsters to appreciate. <laughs> but yeah, in the nineteen around nineteen ninety, you would go for job interviews, and people would say, "Political history is dead. Nobody 
cares anymore about elections and parties and party leaders. And so what are you going to do now? <laughs> and and that was one of the reasons I was interested in immigration history, to make myself seem relevant, because people didn't want to hire people who taught political history anymore. Things change and then they change back. It's a uh, it's it's maybe a, a good lesson for just sticking to your guns. I don't know. You see, you seem like even though you've done this immigration history thing, you seem like you've done okay with it. It's worked out all right for you in the end. You know, I and for me, you know, I, I ended up doing you know native histories mostly because I just wanted to know Florida. Uh, my my older son was born here. I I moved down to Florida when I was twenty two after flunking out of college for the second time. Uh, and saw Ooh. the ocean and thought, I need this. This is what I need. And then I ended up going back to school and just starting all the way over again at like 31 years old and then going off to do my work. And uh, I was actually taking a course on, on terrorism at Florida State University. And they had – you had to pick a – you had to pick your, your week. And I chose the Irish Republican Army as my terrorist group to do a work on and f- started researching that. And then we went out to moved out to Kansas, and there was there was there were there were no there were no uh, there were no resources out there. So I ended up you know studying native history under a guy named Robert Owens, who was terrific, does like borderlands and such in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, and that's how I ended up back here. But I'm always fascinated to hear how folks end up where they are. Some folks stay very close, like I'm from here and I want to do this because I'm related to that, or they just go in wild different directions. And I always like hearing how folks end up where they're at and why. And then the, the, the way I ended up writing about five points, which is, of right. course, what got me to the gangs of New York was, you know, I had uh, published my, got my dissertation published pretty quickly. I, def, you know, I graduated in 1990 and the, you know, this was, again, this is something that I, I, I hear is not done so much anymore, but, you know, I followed Eric Foner's advice. He said, he said, he said, take your dissertation, every place in it where you write this dissertation, change it to this book and send it to a publisher. Because publishers always say, well, we don't want an unrevised dissertation. Mm. But he said, just tell them you've revised it. Tell them, <laughs> tell them you finished it, which was kind of true because you had to kind of finish it in January to be able to defend by March, to be able to graduate in May. Mm. So... So he said, send it in August, and that way you can say, oh, I've been, I spent nine months revising it since I finished it, and, uh, and that worked. And I left New York and went to Laramie, Wyoming. I got a job teaching at the University of Wyoming, which is a, a great school. Beautiful place. And it is, it is, it is gorgeous. Not Boulder, but it's still a pretty, pretty in, <laughs> in a kind of dry, dry, stark way. Do you hike at all? I love hiking. I just got back. Uh, I just got back from a week uh, hiking trip in the Alps. So I lo- love hiking. Oh, Vita, did you a, ever hike when you were out there? Uh, oh, uh, of course, love of it. Course. Love I it. Yeah, went many times to Vitavu. But anyway, so I was in Wyoming, but all my family was back here, and uh, uh, and my wife's family was back here, and so even though I was very happy to have a job, you know, my goal was to be able to move back east somewhere and be closer to all our family, especially once we started having kids. And so, you know, what Boner said to me is, well, you got to get started on a second project so that you can show something to a, you know, have something to entice a hiring committee. So I thought, all right, what can I do that I can, that can be like a small project that I could get started on relatively quickly. And I had actually lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, the first two years I taught at Wyoming, and my wife mm-hmm. commuted south to Denver, and I commuted north to Laramie. 
So it was a 65 mile each way drive to work. And I went, I drove it with my uh, history department colleague, Ron Schultz, who is a revolutionary uh, early national period scholar. And so we had a lot of time to talk on the drive. And so I said to Ron, and we, we were both kind of talking about, you know, what could we do to, to get out of here? <laughs> so I said, well, I want to probably, I wanted, I've, I've done something now that, that gives the nativist point of view. I feel like I should do something that gives the immigrant side of the story. And then, you know, plus that's my way I can kind of show I can do something other than political history since nobody seems to want to hire political historians anymore. So I said, you know, I was thinking I should do some immigration history. And I had told him about Jim Shenton and, and how that had inspired me. And I said, yeah, but I want to do something really small. And I had a, a friend who was a librarian at Columbia, who's now the one of the head librarians at the University of Arkansas, Beth Jewell, who is a, and as you know, as a historian, the best the most important thing to have to do is to befriend good librarians. Oh my and so gosh. Yeah. Beth is like an all-star librarian. And so Beth said, and I told Beth what I was thinking. She said, well, why don't you like uh, choose like one block of an immigrant neighborhood and write a history of that block. And uh, but I thought, no, that's probably too small a project. And so I was telling Ron Schultz this in the car and he, and he said, well, why don't you do, why don't you do five points? And I said, what's five points? <laughs> he said, you don't know what five points is? I said, no. He said, it's this, it was this place in New York that was very infamous as this, uh, as this wretched Irish neighborhood. And I had never heard of it. And I had lived mm -hmm. in New York, right? I had lived, I had lived, grown up in the New York suburbs. I had uh, gone to grad school in New York. And then I remembered that with Jim, one of the things Jim Shenton did was he gave these walking tours, before that was a thing. He gave these walking tours and we'd actually gone on a walking tour of Five Points. And then it rang a bell. I was like, oh yeah, I went there with him. And so that I decided, all right, that would be my project. Because I thought, all right, it's the neighborhood is only like four by six blocks. I thought that's, I can handle that. I can write about the Irish there. Maybe that'll get me a job back East. That was how I got started on, on Five Points. And and it was in my, you know, so for that project, and, and when I told people I was going to do that, everybody said, well, you can't do that because those people left no records and you, you can't write the history of these immigrants based on just the, the biased things that outsiders said about them. And I thought, well, I'll go find the, the records they did leave. And so I spent a lot of time at the Municipal Archives of New York, which is on Chamber Street, just across the street from the entrance ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge. And actually just like a couple of blocks from where Five Points was. And so I spent a lot of time at the municipal archives there. I'd make trips back from Laramie and I could stay with my parents or my in-laws and spend a week or two at a time in the summer, even more there. And it was in my time there that they started to know he's the guy who's working on Five Points. And I had met the head of the archives, who was then he was the one of the assistant heads, but in grad school, in one of my grad courses, a guy named Ken Cobb, who is still the he's actually the head of the archive, but back then he was he was a deputy. And so one day Ken said to me, Oh, you should meet the the uh, Scorsese people are coming in here and uh, doing research on on five points for this movie. You should you should meet them. And I thought, oh, they, they won't want to meet me. 
But then they reached out to me. So they apparently heard about me being there. And so they they wrote to me. And that was how I got involved with the movie. This is an incredible story. I uh, I don't know many scholars who've had a chance to have their work directly either turned into a film or advise on a film. And I think a lot of our listeners, because of the history of historians at the movies, are going to be particularly keen to hear your insight as far as your experiences with the filmmaking process or where your you know where your expertise was. Um, I kind of want to jump in though to set the stage because I feel like when I talk to, as you were saying earlier, you know your new book coming out is for you know your general person, right? Uh, your non-scholar, if you will. Folks may not be familiar with, and I've always found like when I talk to folks, they know the big picture ideas of American history, or at least they say they do. They know the American Revolution. They've seen, they know the Civil War. Of course, this is, plays a part in this film. They may be familiar with the Great Depression or World War II. I think a lot of people like myself who grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, certainly I grew up in the shadow of Vietnam and the Cold War. So that is still was still very relevant to me. But I don't know that people understand nativism in the context of the mid-19th century and why there was this pushback against Irish immigration of all things. I think that you know you were you're talking about how do uh, how do these immigrants move and climb this socio uh, social ladder. I think it's understood now. You know, uh, I was just asking my son to name his favorite presidents, and he's just, he just loves JFK. He is, he is he just wants to he he he's, George Washington's his favorite, but I think John Kennedy. He's like number five. He's fifteen, and he's like he's like I love JFK. I'm like, there's not a lot of his presidency, son, but okay, I'll buy you some books. That's fine. So, um, could you talk? I guess maybe can we can we set the stage here for this? Like, how are we entering into? This movie, say in in the mid eighteen forties, what what's going on here? Why is there's why why does Daniel Day Lewis not like Irish people? What's going on here? Well, one of the paradoxes of American history is that you know already by the time of the American Revolution, when the United States is founded, the country has already for many decades been thought of as a place that is a refuge for immigrants. Even when it was an English colony, the English use the United States as a place or use the colonies as a place to send people who, for one reason or another, they thought weren't doing very well in Europe. So, you know, you've got these French Huguenots, uh, we should do something for them because they're Protestants and we should support them. And anyone who hates the French, we like, but we don't want them in England. So we'll, we'll send them to New York and, and, you know, lots of groups were like that. And so the English, even before they lost the colonies, thought of America as a place that should be filling with immigrants. But the paradox is that throughout American history, and again, even before the revolution, the the people who were already in America often felt very ambivalent about newcomers coming to join them. And they thought, well, we're good Americans, but those these other people, they can't be good Americans. And so that's been a theme an undercurrent throughout American history, which is, you know, as I said, kind of ironic given the nation's uh, longstanding history as a, as thinking of itself as a refuge for immigrants. And that continues into the 19th century so that people are wary about immigrants, but it builds in the period when the movie starts in the 1840s. So that very opening scene mm-hmm. of the movie, uh, that battle that, that, 
at the beginning, it, you, you see it and you're like, where are we? I mean, probably, you know, you're coming to the gangs of New York, that it's going to be New York, but it sure doesn't look like New York. It looks like some medieval village or something. Yeah. And people are fighting with, you know, broad axes and, and cudgels and things. And you think, where is this? And then it turns out to be New York. And, and that first scene is supposed to take place, like you said, in the 1840s. And by then, America is starting to get a lot of Catholic immigrants, really, for the first time. There had always been some Catholics, but they had always been a small minority, just like they were a small minority of the country. And Catholics hadn't been very well liked in the United States. And so when they had come to America, they had tended to concentrate in a few places like Maryland, which had kind of been set up as a, as a refuge for Catholics. But by the 1840s, enough Irish Catholics are leaving Ireland and coming to America that they become a significant population. And so for the first time in the 1830s and 40s, Americans start wondering, are these really the kinds of people we want here? And at first, of course, that happens in the places where most of those Catholics are settling, which tend to be the big cities. And so it's going to be New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, those kinds of places, because they're the only places really that are getting enough Catholics that that people really notice. And and the the real antipathy against these these Catholic immigrants and especially Irish Catholic is this belief that the United States is a Protestant nation by definition. Mm. And even though that's not written anywhere, there is this widespread belief that the United States is a Protestant nation and that what makes the United States great is its Protestantism. You know, there's a whole worldview that that involves this, the idea that, you know, why is the United States so economically successful? Well, it's because Americans are inventors and innovators and Protestantism supports invention, new ideas, whereas Catholics, you have to follow the old dogma. You have to do what the leaders say. It takes centuries to change anything. The scientist, you know, Galileo gets persecuted for for making a scientific discovery that was the kind of thing that that led people to believe that you know the Americans' economic prosperity was a result of its Protestantism, and then even democracy and political freedom. Again, Americans mostly ascribed to Protestantism. They said, "Look, uh, what happens with Protestantism? Each each congregation chooses its minister. If they don't like him, they can fire him and and hire somebody else. That's not how Catholicism works. Catholicism, your priest is assigned." And you have to take him whether you like him or not. And he only leaves if the hierarchy chooses to move him elsewhere. And they said Protestantism is by definition democratic. It fosters democracy. Catholicism is by definition monarchic. And Mm. therefore, Catholics can't make good citizens. And then finally, what people said was that, you know, to be a good American and to help the country be governed well you have to be well-educated. You have to be able to look at the the stuff that politicians say and weigh your choices and, and think about the options and make good, well-educated decisions. And Protestant Americans believe that Catholics uh, were not educated enough to do that, that Irish, the Irish in particular weren't. So many of them were illiterate. Uh, but furthermore, they believe that Catholics didn't even care about education, that for Protestants, the key thing was reading and interpreting the Bible on your own. Whereas Catholics, they would go to mass, they would be told what to think. Even the Catholic Bible had all these footnotes that told you how Mm -hmm. to interpret every passage. So to Protestant Americans, Catholicism was just antithetical to 
the kind of well-educated citizen that was necessary for a republic to survive. So all those things are going on when Gangs of New York begins and you have a character like Daniel Day-Lewis who believes that the Irish Catholic immigrants are gaining too much power and that something has to be done to suppress it and suppress them. Now, this guy, Daniel Day-Lewis, and we should talk because this is maybe my favorite version of a character in all of film history. <laughs> the only word I have to describe for Daniel Day-Lewis in as bill cutting is delicious. I, I like, I, I look at film as food and I cannot get enough of his performance. It is, so, <laughs> it is so amazing. I can, I can just sit and watch this with this role so much, but bill Cutting's not a real guy, correct? Well, he is closely based on a real guy. So there was, a, there was a New Yorker named bill, the butcher pool, P O O L E. And he very famously died in a bar fight in New York right at the peak of the Know Nothing movement in 1854. And he died at the hands of an Irish-American political rival. Mm. And supposedly, uh, according to the press, as he lay dying there in the bar room where the fight had taken place, he said uh, to his friends, I die a true American. And then the nativists all took this up and made him this hero of the nativist movement. And the real Bill Poole was not really, he was not anyone who is known as someone who was active in the Know Nothing Party or anything like that. But the Know Nothings took him up and adopted him. He's killed by an Irish American. He himself mm. is not an Irish American. There's the belief that, and there's some truth to it, that what you had there is kind of a factional rivalry between Irish and non-Irish Democrats, which is a big deal in New York politics in that time, the Irish and the non-Irish Democrats fighting for control of the party. And so in that way, the, the Nona things take him up as their hero. And so he's not well known at all before he dies, but he becomes famous in 1854 when he's murdered. The Know Nothings and, and men like, say, Bill Cutting here, we know they're anti-Irish. They're anti-Black as well. Or they're they're strongline just white Protestants. Uh, how, how are they viewing the world on racial terms? Well, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> so if, if, we, if we take your question to be about the Know Nothings in general, it's easier mm. to answer. And then we can kind of get at this one figure for whom we don't really know the answer though Scorsese has guessed at an answer. I mean, so for the know-nothings, the know-nothings come out of the same evangelical Protestant fervor that a lot of abolitionism comes out of. So there are a lot of know-nothings in the North, a majority of the know-nothings who are just as much anti-slavery as they are anti-Catholic. It comes from that same evangelical belief that you need to perfect the world to bring about the millennium. And that's part of why you're on earth is to end sin on earth. And what are the sins that their, that their ministers are telling them constantly about? One of the sins is drunkenness. Another sin is Catholicism, which they say is a false religion. And that if we can eliminate Catholicism, then God will send Jesus back to earth. The millennium will come. And so the know-nothings overall are anti-slavery. 
are they as fervently anti-slavery as most Republicans? Probably not. But they're more, you know, so when, when we talk about kind of degrees of anti-slavery in the 1850s, you know, you talk about at the extreme left end abolitionists, you know, people who want to end slavery immediately. And then you have people who are anti-slavery. Those are people like Abraham Lincoln who say, well, we can't really end slavery, but we can stop it from spreading. And that's where most known things stood. So most known things were really kind of in Abraham Lincoln's camp there. So nativists overall in the North in particular are going to be anti-slavery almost as much as they are anti-Catholic. Now you get into your, your question, which is, you know, Bill Poole or Bill Cutting, that's going to be more complicated. You know, there aren't many white New Yorkers. Um, there are some. Those are mostly the abolitionists. Um, there aren't many white New Yorkers who believe in equality for black New Yorkers. And so someone like Bill Poole, who is a, who is an, you know, kind of a ward healer in the Democratic Party is probably going to have that same view that the place for Black Americans is as servants, as waiters, cleaning my chimneys, peddling mm. buttermilk on the streets, but not having any, not having a political rights for sure, but really not even having civil rights either. And so, you know, we can't say what a, you know, nobody knows what the actual historical figure Bill Poole thought about that because if he said, he never said it in writing. And and obviously the Daniel Day-Lewis character, we don't know. But and I think that you bring up an important point here, which is that being anti-slavery does not equate to uh, being pro-equality, correct? Exactly, exactly. So, and, and Abraham Lincoln's the best example of that. So even when he's Right when he's debating Stephen Douglas in 1858 in the famous Lincoln Douglas debates, and Douglas is trying to kind of catch him in this by saying, "Oh, you you know, if if you win, blacks are going to be marrying our sisters and and stuff like that, and our our daughters." That was the worst possible thing you could say back then. Is you know, you want a black man to marry your daughter, my daughter, mm-hmm. and then Lincoln said, "No, no, no." At in these debates, he said, "No, I don't want any." He said, I believe that uh, that there's got to be a superior and an inferior position. And as a white man, I want the white man to be in the superior position. So he said, but, but then Lincoln would try to shift the focus and say, but just because I don't want an African-American as my wife doesn't mean I want her as my slave or that she deserves to be anyone's slave and that Blacks deserve the right to the fruits of their labor and not to be the property of anyone. But so Lincoln, throughout the 1850s, is espousing the idea that Blacks should not be slaves, but that they should not have equal civil rights, much less political rights with white Americans. And, and that's that's definitely the majority view in the North. Though, you know, in in, in a place like New York City, You've got plenty of people who who kind of support Lincoln's view, but you've got just as many people and probably more who say, no, you know, it, it's true that slavery, it's, slavery is a shame, but we have it. And, and they, they kind of, they kind of espouse the Thomas Jefferson view, like we can't keep it, but we, we can't let it go either. Because if we free all these people, they'll murder all the whites in the South, and then they'll come North and, and want our jobs. And so better to keep slavery 
Um, and plus the constitution protects it. So, so we can't change it anyway. And so in New York, in New York city, Mm -hmm. that would have been the majority view that, that slavery is a necessary evil for the country. And, and, you know, a lot of people probably would have hoped that like Lincoln, that, you know, one day, hopefully it'll disappear somehow, but that would be some far off thing that they didn't have to worry about. But what you probably have in New York City is slightly more people who think, you know, it's actually not such a bad thing because blacks are incapable of, of supporting themselves. They, they really only can survive with our help. And it's really a blessing to enslave them. So that Southern view had a lot of believers in, in New York City. Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated with this because the relationship of, say, people in, say, Boston or New York or others or other cities removed from the South. And I'm talking far removed, you know, not not place like D.C., which is very close to the line. But they've got a different relationship to slavery and the fact that it's the thing that they see or, or excuse me, they hear about or maybe they read about but don't actually see in in their own personal lives, right? You're not going to, if you're in New York, you don't, you're not going to encounter someone who's enslaved, correct? Well, you know, a Southerner could still bring their, Southerners love traveling to New York. It was a big tourist destination for them, not just tourism, but actually it was a kind of thing where, you know, Southerners would go once or twice a year to the North and go on shopping sprees and stock up and you'd go to New York and you'd buy the clothing for your slaves for the coming year. And you'd buy yourself furniture for your plantation and you'd buy, you know, your wife would buy the latest fashions. And so New Yorkers felt very conscious of the fact that a significant part of their economy came from Southerners. And so what New Yorkers often say, including immigrant New Yorkers is you know, we don't want to upset the South because the South is a big part of our business and we need the South to stay prosperous. So we stay prosperous. Now, you don't see the Irish saying this that much because the Irish aren't really part of the Southern economy so much. Uh, you know, most Irish immigrants are doing construction work, running small businesses that cater to other immigrants. But you look at the letters written by German immigrants in New York at this time, and they talk about this all the time. There are a lot of Germans in New York who are cabinet makers and carriage makers and things of this sort. And they talk constantly about their Southern customers. It's very important to them that they not lose them. And in fact, then what happens when the Civil War starts is all these Southerners write letters to their their the Northerners to whom they owe money and say, well, we're at war with you now, so we're not paying you. And then the, these German immigrants write these letters uh, uh to their families back home saying, I can't believe this. All these people who owe us money are now repudiating their debts. And how are we ever going to get paid? And one thing it makes you realize looking at these letters is, you know, you think about a credit card as like a modern thing, but everybody mm -hmm. bought stuff on credit even 175 years ago. And you forget how much credit was important to the economy. And New York was a, you know, the, the nation's banking cent center already by the, the period that Gangs of New York takes place. And so those credit relationships were really important, even to immigrants. I want to ask you about maybe a guy who is maybe a bit of a secondary character in the film, but I, but I find his on-screen representation well super important because we don't often see it. At least I haven't often seen it. And that, that, that's Bill Tweed. 
Uh, mm-hmm. we, we see we see him and he plays a huge role in this film. We know he's a real guy. Can you talk a little bit about who Bill Tweed was and why he's so important in the history of, say, New York or the history of the United States? Sure. Well, one thing I'll tell you, having having read an earlier version of the screenplay and then having talked to Scorsese and some of the people he, the writers he worked with, is Tweed actually in the, so when the Scorsese wrote the screenplay or, mm-hmm. or helped worked on the screenplay and the treatment for the gangs of New York early in his career, like we're talking about right after, around the period of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Like already he had this idea to make this movie. This is very okay. early on in his career that he wanted to make Gangs of New York. And in the original iteration, Boss Tweed is actually a much more prominent character in the story. And it's only as he struggles to get the movie made that Hollywood people say, oh, nobody would. The, the story as it was originally written is one that historians would love because it's kind of a political history of New York. And the, the very prominent characters are Boss Tweed and then this guy, Fernando Wood, who is the mayor of New York City in this period, who is a rival of Tweed's. And they're like the main characters in the movie. And the studio said, nobody's going to want this. We need a love interest. And so <laughs> that's where Cameron Diaz came in as the love interest to Leonardo DiCaprio. And Fernando Wood is axed from the movie completely. Now, historians and, and the public know Fernando Wood if they've seen the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, right? Mm-hmm. You remember the Fernando, you remember there are the couple of members of the House of Representatives who are against the 13th Amendment. And the leader of that group in the movie is Fernando Wood. And and uh, so he is now known through the movies, but he got left on the cutting room floor of the of the gangs of New York. Or he never made it actually to mm. the screen to get on the cutting room floor. And then Boss Tweed went from being a major character to being a minor character. <sighs> but anyway, back to your question. So William Tweed starts out as a chair maker, but comes from a fairly comfortable middle-class artisan family and becomes active in politics early on uh, as initially a nativist. And he he's, you know, the first time you see him in the written record of New York is as the leader of a, of a nativist fraternal order. Uh, one of these ones from the 1840s called the Order of United Americans. Um, which was kind of a forerunner, an 1840s forerunner of the know-nothings who would develop in the 1850s. And he's the president of one of their lodges, one of their lodges on the Lower East Side of New York. So he starts out making a name for himself as an anti-immigrant leader. But from what we can tell, he really, you know, he looks at the demographics of New York. He looks at all the immigrants arriving. He looks at them all becoming Democrats, his party. And he sees there's no future as a Democrat, as someone who espouses uh, taking rights away from immigrants. So he stops espousing that view and starts making friends with immigrants as well as native-born New Yorkers and, and starts working his way up the, up the ladder of the Democratic organization in New York, which was known then as Tammany Hall because mm-hmm. of the, the name of the building in which the Democrats initially met. And 
Tweed works his way slowly up the ladder and by the Civil War is one of the kingpins of the Democratic Party. But he's one of these people who doesn't want to hold any prominent office where he gets in the spotlight because he he's not a good public speaker. He's not very good looking. He's, he's corpulent. His beard is kind of ragged looking. He wants to wield power behind the scenes. And so he becomes known by the end of the Civil War as Boss Tweed. And so, you know, he wields his power through positions like being deputy street commissioner. And the reason that position is important is because the street commissioner appoints hundreds and hundreds of New Yorkers to have positions uh, paving New York streets. And those having those positions at your disposal was known as patronage. And the politicians who controlled the most patronage had the most power because all those people who you gave jobs to would then work for you to keep you in office and vote for your candidates. And so Tweed wielded power that way. The other thing that happened in those days is if you had a civil service job, you had to kick back a portion of your salary to the party. Mm. And so because Tweed had these positions where he was able to control who got jobs, he was able to control the money coming into the into the party. And then by the end of the Civil War, he he holds a position that's really important, which is during the 1850s and the Civil War, Republicans complain that New York is spending money profligately. And, and during the Civil War, certainly the city is spending more money than ever before. In part, they're spending the money to help anybody who gets drafted. The city will pay for their commutation so they don't have to enter the army if they don't want to. And so the city runs up a huge debt and Republicans become more popular during the war and they uh, win elective office and they end up working on an agreement with the Democrats that says, we're not going to let the city spend so much anymore. In fact, we're going to have this new board that's going to oversee all expenditures. And it has to be by law, half Republicans and half Democrats who run it. And so Tweed realizes, oh, this is where the power is going to be. And so he gets himself elected to this board. And then he bribes one of the one of the Republican members of the board to absent himself during certain key votes. Uh, and in that way is able to ensure that contracts that that Tweed wants to go through that uh, involve large kickbacks to the Democratic Party are approved. And so Tweed, in this manner, he never is mayor. He eventually becomes a state senator, but he's never mayor. He doesn't hold any important city office other than on this board of supervisors. He becomes the power broker of the city and the boss of the, the Democratic Party. And so he's he's portrayed in the movie kind of, you know, I think fairly accurately. We don't really know very much about him. He was he was one of those politicians who never wrote anything down, who made sure there was no no paper trail ever for anything he did. Now, once he gets arrested in the late 1860s, he just spills the beans and and tells all. And it's a fascinating document, his kind of confession, as it were, which is in the form of testimony before this committee that was set up to investigate the frauds of the of the Tweed ring. But so that's how he's portrayed in the movie as this kind of cunning wire puller, right? He says in the movie, he says to the Daniel Day-Lewis character, you know, you're on the losing side here. The immigrants, Mm -hmm. they keep coming. There are more and more of them. Making yourself known as the foe of the immigrant is never going to be a a, a winning strategy in, in New York City. 
the the thing if you remember the little you know the the screenwriters and and talking to some of these screenwriters you know they they always want to add these like little details to the characters to give them depth and so i think as you saw in the movie they they tweed has like a bird like a bird collection he's got these birds and, and i'm not sure what that's supposed to show other than that he's like he's a thoughtful person he's not you know i guess that's a contrast to uh to Bill the Butcher, who's who's so violent, and here's Tweed with his nice, his pretty birds with their beautiful bird song, and 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 that's how Tweed is portrayed. So so that's a, a I think a, a, as things go, a fairly accurate portrayal. And that that actor they got to portray him, I forget his name, but he's a he he did a very good job. Yeah, he's he's really good. And you know, as you're saying, you know, it's it's, it's unfortunate because. I watched this film and I, I watched it a couple of weeks ago before before we taped this. And man, every time I watch this, I want more tweed. I want more. <laughs> it's, it just sounds so weird, you know, 150, whatever, six years removed. But I, just, I want to see more of the internal dynamics of what tweed is. And we see a bit of this, right? With the, you know, there's the little humorous parts where the house is burning down and you've got the two rival fire departments and you see. You see Tweed working to make sure that everybody everything's getting padded as far as we, we we see a little bit behind the scenes of him making sure that everyone's getting paid uh, or that he's getting paid and then everyone else is getting paid uh, as well. But man, I wanted more Tweed in this. He's fascinating. Well, character. Scorsese would be happy to hear that because he wanted more Tweed too. Well, if Martin Scorsese would like to call me at some point in time, uh, that would be also fine uh, with me. We could make Gangs of Florida would be just fine. Uh, <laughs> we make Gangs of West Palm Beach or something along those lines. We we could Florida's a hot mess. I'm sure we can probably find a story uh, here or two. Um, but speaking of other stories, and actually you would kind of mention this a little bit earlier, uh, we get the Cameron Diaz love interest character. One of the things that happens in this film is she's constantly talking about getting out of New York. And I'm kind of wondering about maybe another migration. We talk about the migration of people from Ireland into New York. She's constantly talking about California. And I'm kind of wondering, is there an out-migration for Irish or other immigrants from into New York out to California as well? Do we see that as well? What does California represent for people in New York in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s? It's so interesting you asked that because I had completely forgotten that Cameron Diaz talks about that. That's actually a big theme of my new book that's coming out next year. Oh, good. So what you find is, you know, so what I've done is in that book is I've traced all these New York Irish immigrants and seen where they end up using Ancestry.com and Mm -hmm. things like that to combine with these immigrant bank records to see where people went. So the num- If you left New York City, the number one place you would go if you wanted to leave New York was to go to Brooklyn, which was then a separate city. The second most popular place to go would be the opposite direction and the same short distance to Hoboken or Jersey City, just across the Hudson River. But after New Jersey, the most popular place for the Irish who left New York to go was California, which I was totally shocked at. That. You don't think about California now in, as part of the Irish diaspora, at least I, I, I would think Chicago or Boston. Yeah, no, it was California. And so what I came to perceive was, you, know, you think about, and you raised this at the, at the very beginning of our, of our conversation about, you know, what kinds of people are, 
are leaving home and, you know, going through a five week ship journey. You might, you know, your ship might wreck. Who knows what you're going to find in this new place? What kind of person does that? So it turns out what kind of person who does that is a really ambitious person, Mm. right? It's not a, a stay at home, stick in the mud kind of person. It's a person who's really ambitious. And the people who were the most ambitious saw California as the place where your ambitions had the best opportunity of being fulfilled, right? So we tend to think of like New York as this city of dreams where if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But in this period, in this period, people thought, you know, you looked at New York City and it's expensive and everyone knew, even back then, everyone knew that buying real estate was the best way to get ahead in America, right? So if you're an if you're an, an American in this period, whether you're immigrant or not, banks, there's no deposit insurance. Banks go bankrupt all the time. They're bankrupts all the time. So banks aren't a safe place for your money. But what is a safe investment is real estate because, you know, the building could burn down, but the, but the, the land is still there. But very few immigrants, even successful ones, could afford to buy real estate in New York City, right? Just like today, a lot of very prosperous people in New York City don't buy an apartment because it's just so expensive. But when these immigrants looked around and said, well, where is a place where I can go where I can afford property and there are people like me and there's a shortage of labor, so I'm sure to get a job. And that was California. So even in the 1850s, right? Because it's the tail end of the, the, the famine Irish kind of just barely missed the gold rush. A few get out there in time, but mostly they can't afford to go there because it's, it's expensive to go out there. But they know that there's, you know, they hear from the ones who go out there, oh, you got to come, you know, you get paid a dollar a day as a day laborer on a construction site there. You get paid $2 here because everyone's desperate for workers. If you're a carpenter, instead of a dollar fifty, you get $4 and and so forth. And just all these stories of people striking it rich in California, not not in the gold mines, but selling stuff to the miners and selling booze to the miners and selling supplies to the miners and buying land, you know, speculating in land and, and so forth. So California was the most popular place for the famine immigrants to go if they didn't want to stay in New York or New Jersey. And so that's very historically accurate. And I had, I had forgotten about that. This would have been what, all Northern California specifically, or just oh, up yes. and down the coast? No, this would have been kind of imagine a, an, an east to west stretch from San Francisco going west from San Francisco into the Bay Area, which was already getting popular then, and then further west into the San Joaquin Valley, which is where mm-hmm. farmers are going, people are going and becoming farmers. And then further west from that, you get into the Sierra Nevadas, which is where the miners were going. So it's this kind of 100-mile stretch from San Francisco west that is where most of the people are, are settling. I, uh, I this is my guilty confession. I have yet to see San, San Francisco. It is the city in the United States in which I have not been that I want to see most. If that makes any sense at all, I am dying to get to San Francisco. I need to see the city. I've seen Bullet too many times. I I've got- <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, I promise you, if you go there, Steve McQueen will zoom by. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'll get up there and start walking up hills and the Floridian in me will not know what to do. So uh, <laughs> um, 
I want to ask you before I, I, I want to ask you some questions about about that screenwriting process about you know this is what the uh, filmmakers wanted to do with the film. But before so before I get into that, I want to ask you about one last piece historically of this of the setting, which is the draft riots and what is happening. We tend to think about you know I grew up in Kentucky and Louisiana and Tennessee, seeing the memories of the Civil War are still very much rooted in my experience as an American, you know, much later. Uh, there's a statue to this day, and I, you'll often hear me complaining about this, of Robert E. Lee on my courthouse square in my hometown of Murray, Kentucky. My family reunion is always at the Jefferson Davis mon- uh, Monument in uh, outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, a thing that I no longer attend for obvious reasons. But for me, as a native Southerner, you know, we, we, we very much, the South, the memory of the war is still very much there. And I'm kind of wondering, we see the draft riots towards the end of this film. The climax, the big battle happens during, you know, at the same time. What's the New York experience during the war? And what are these draft riots for people who are not familiar with this at all? What's the violence of the Civil War in New York? Well, as we were talking about before, the New Yorkers are not very happy about there being a civil war at all. That's why you get at the very, you know, during the secession winter, the mayor at the time, Fernando Wood, proposes that New York secede from the rest of New York State and become a neutral city, neither north nor south. So it could continue to do business with both. So New Yorkers are... New York City residents are very ambivalent about the war because of all the business that they did with the South. And so that that's there at the beginning. The fire once Fort Sumter is fired upon, that changes a lot of things. So, you know, Lincoln was it kind of proves how smart Lincoln was in in maneuvering things so that the South had to fire the first shots of the war because that changes the minds of a lot of New Yorkers. And so you get this great outpouring of support for the Union. And even lots of Irish Americans are volunteering for the Union Army. They want to go teach the Southerners a lesson that you can't fire at the American flag. But they all expect the war to be a really quick one. They expect Bull Run's going to be the one battle, and they better get there before the war is over. And so once the war drags on, New Yorkers become more and more ambivalent about it and then unhappy with it, especially after the preliminary emancipation proclamation. They are then very much against that and therefore become much more opposed to the war. And then as the North starts to run out of soldiers and the draft is instituted, New Yorkers are even more upset because they feel like it's one thing to have an all-volunteer army. It's another thing to force people to fight in a war that they don't believe in. And so when the draft is started in the, uh, you know, right around this time of year, actually, the beginning of July uh, in, that, in 1863, uh, New Yorkers riot when the, the draft is instituted. And the, you know, the way the draft is held is every person who's, you have to go register for the draft if you are, you know, between certain ages and Uh, so forth. And they write your name down in a book and then they put a number next to your name and then they spin this wheel. And if your number comes up, then you're drafted. And at that point, you either have to, you either have to show up and enlist, or you have to provide a substitute for yourself, or you have to pay $300. And that's the most controversial part of the draft law is this, this commutation clause that says, 
If you're drafted, you don't have to serve so long as you either provide a substitute or pay $300. And Lincoln very much believed that this was a very kind thing he was doing because part of the reason for the $300 clause was without that, the price of a substitute would have gotten really high because the price would have been bid up by all the people who were desperate to find someone to take their place. By, institu- by putting this $300 option in there, Lincoln was putting a cap on what the price substitutes could charge. Now, if you're a poor Irish immigrant, though, you don't like that so much, in part because you don't have the $300 probably. If you do have the $300, you've been saving it to start a business or to, to feed your, your parents in Ireland and you don't want to be spending it on this war. Or you might want to hire yourself out as a substitute and you don't want there to be a cap. You want to be able to get $500 for being a substitute, not $300. So for all reasons, you don't like the $300 clause. And so that's particularly unpopular. And so when the draft starts, um, New Yorkers riot, primarily the Irish uh, immigrant New Yorkers. And New York is thrown into chaos and... The draft offices are burned and mobs go around setting fire to um, pretty much anything that's associated with Republicans. So like the home of the mayor or African-Americans who the rioters blame for the draft, right? Because their reasoning is, well, before the Emancipation Proclamation, you had plenty of volunteers. But once you had that, lots of people said, no, we're not going to volunteer anymore. And that's why you had to have a draft. So you have things like the uh, black, the African-American orphanage of the city is burned to the ground and, and uh, other kind of symbols of the African-American presence in the city are attacked. Mobs go around and, and identify homes of black New Yorkers and attack the homes. And and there's, you know, probably about a dozen black New Yorkers who were lynched during the riots. And, you know, you end up with these huge fights in the streets where you have several thousand rioters facing off against, you know, a regiment of troops and eventually uh, artillery units who are clearing the streets by firing uh, canister and grape shot at the at New Yorkers to try to rein in the mobs and get them to disperse. So one of the interesting things about the fact that he uses this at the end of the movie is that this was added at the very, very, very end of the process. So really? I read, the last time I read the screenplay was right before they started filming. And this was, draft riots were not a part of the movie. The movie ended in the 1850s with kind of this fighting between Bill the Butcher and the, and the Irish. There was no, the Civil War wasn't part of the movie at all. And so this was a very, very late addition by one of the, script doctors uh, who wanted to give it a, I guess, what they thought was a more American, make it a more American story and less New York immigrant story, per se. We talk a lot on Historics of the Movies. Uh, you, you see a lot of people on Twitter, uh, scholars talking about what it is they do, whether they're writing or they're teaching or things like that. I'm kind of wondering, with your experience What's it like for a historian working and advising on a film? How was that different? Were there things that, that the filmmakers came to you asking for advice on? Like, What kind of questions are you getting in this position as the expert in Five Points now? What kind of questions are you being asked or what kind of work are people asking you to help specifically on these kinds of films? 
The way it worked for me was, and, and keep in mind, I was not the person who, like, they ha- ended up hiring somebody who, like, had to be on the set, or, or if not on the set, then at on call mm-hmm. uh, in those days with a beeper uh, to be on call um, in Rome. Historic in and of itself, right? Right. So they had to be in Rome, and they asked me if I would go to Rome, and I could not do it uh, for because you had to commit to like a year because that was how long they expected the filming to take, and I, I couldn't do that. So my role was reading the screenplay and critiquing the historical accuracy of the screenplay. That's what they they asked me to do. Um, and so I went through the screenplay and read it and took lots of notes. And then I went to New York and first I met with the first assistant director who I discovered. I had no, you know, you see that term in the credits of movies and you think, mm-hmm. oh, that must be a pretty lowly person, first assistant director. And it turns out that's the right-hand man of the director, which was really interesting to learn. So so first I met with the first assistant director and went through everything and him and his whole little team. And they took lots of notes and lots of notes. And we spent, I went through page by page. And then they said, okay, now we want you to say all that to Marty. And so in, in comes Marty with a whole nother entourage. And so now... We're in the same room, but now there's like me and Marty sitting at a table and then back against the wall are like 12 people all taking notes. And then I did the same thing again. And so he said, you know, tell me what's wrong with the movie from a historical point of view. So I said, okay. And so I go to this page and I say, all right, well, on this page, you know, this scene, this conflates things. This happened 40 years after this thing. So that's not really accurate. And, you know, he would say, okay, what's next? And I'd say, all right, this scene definitely wouldn't have happened like this. This is something that's really from the period of Italian immigrants, not Irish immigrants. He said, yes, I know that, but I love Jacob Reese's photographs of New York. And I want a scene that pays homage to Jacob Reese's photographs. And so that's why that scene has to look that way because I'm paying homage to Jacob Reese. And so, yeah, Jacob Reese, he took pictures of Italian immigrants, not Irish immigrants, but that's why that has to be that way. So I said, okay. And then I, we go to the next page and I say, well, and here's another scene. And this definitely wouldn't have happened that way for this reason or that reason. I can't remember what it was. He says, he says, yes, I know that, but this scene is an homage to a scene in the 1926 film Battleship Potemkin. And that's why that scene has to look that way because this, I'm copying what happens in this shot, in this famous shot of the Battleship Potemkin. And I want to pay homage to one of my favorite directors. And so that's why that scene has to be that way. So I said, okay, I mean, what can you say? Then we go, we get to a scene that I don't know if you remember this scene. There's, there's a, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. There's a scene where he shows, um, the camera shows immigrants getting off a ship on a pier. And then the camera pans and you're looking at the immigrants at a table on the docks where they are becoming citizens. And then the camera pans a little more to the right and those people who've just become citizens are joining the army. And then the camera pans a little more 
and it shows those people who've just joined the army getting on a different ship. And then it pans a little more, and now we've gone 360 degrees, and we're back to where we started. And the same ship that the immigrants, same place where the immigrants have gotten off a ship, there are now coffins being taken off the ship that are of dead Civil War casualties. And I said, oh my gosh, everything is wrong here. You didn't you didn't be, you couldn't become a citizen right when you walked off the ship you did get to become a citizen much faster if you joined the army that was a thing if you joined the army instead of having to wait 5 years you could wait 2 years mm-hmm. but that happened after not right there on the dock and then i said furthermore if you join the you know you're making it kind of look coercive Really, the immigrants could, you know, kind of had agency and could could sell, you know, there were bounties and you could actually make a lot of money joining the army. You know, the, the, by 1863, the bounty is $500, which was two years pay for a, a, a day, an immigrant day laborer. So that's a wow. lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, immigrants were actually quite savvy about using competition to get the most money as a substitute or, you know, even traveling like, um, you know, Joseph Pulitzer arrives in comes to America specifically to make money joining the Union Army. And he goes to Boston and he discovers um, he's been he's been actually brought to America for free by a recruiter. And he discovers on the ship that he can actually make more money if he goes to New York. So Pulitzer, instead of going to where he's supposed to go in Boston and signing up and getting $100 to join the Army, he jumps off the ship in the harbor, swims ashore, gets to New York where he can get four times as much money as a substitute. Um, And that's the beginning of the Joseph Pulitzer story. So immigrants are savvy about this. And so I said, you know, you kind of make them look like victims and they really have more agency in this. And he's like, he says, all right, I know that's all true. He says, but on the one hand, there is this financial coercion. If you're poor, you're going to sign up and maybe become a substitute and become cannon fodder when really it's not in your best interest and, and maybe your family is suffering and that's why you do it. And I say, yeah, that's that's true. I, I admit that. But he says, he says, the real reason that that scene has to be that way, why I had to put all those things into that one shot is because, now keep in mind, this is this movie is being filmed in 1999. He says, we have this new technology where we use computer graphics to put things into a shot that aren't there. So we can just have this green screen and I have my actors here and everything behind them is computer generated. He said, this has never been done before. And I'm going to be one of the first people to do this. He said, they do this like in star Wars, but I'm going to do it in a, in a real movie. And so he said, the reason that this is so important is because every filmmaker's jaw is going to be on the floor when they see that shot where I start out here, uh, the, the camera pans around 360 degrees. And when we get back to where we started, there's an entirely different ship at the dock where we started. Nobody's going to know how I did that. It's going to be amazing. That's why I had to make that scene that way. So I said, okay, I get it. There, there was only one time. So I, I spent three hours with him that day going over the various things. And then later they would do revisions and they'd, they'd FedEx me the revisions and say, okay, have we screwed anything up here? And I would write them back and say, nope, we really haven't screwed up. Or yes, you have. There was only one time in the whole three hours where Scorsese 
had a different reaction because all the other times he'd say, well, poetic license, artistic license. Uh, and he would explain this. He would say, you know, he would say, I hate the fact that I'm known as a historically accurate filmmaker. He said, that is not my goal. He said, my goal is to be a compelling storyteller. And it's promoting the storyline and the emotional impact of the story that motivates everything I do. So the reason I make things historically accurate is to try to tug at your heartstrings here or there, or make you in awe of the accuracy and the recreation of history. So he said, instead, people think of me, oh, he cares so much about history. And he said, I do care about history, but that's not the end game. The end game is creating this emotional effect as a storyteller. So, you know, for every, you know, and there was an inaccuracy on every page of the 120 page manuscript or screenplay, but for pretty much everyone, he said, well, you know, that has this emotional effect or that if I explain that, then people will get confused and lose and be distracted from the real point, which is to, you know, be in awe of that kiss they just had or, or be horrified by the tenement they live in. And, and so, you know, it's hard to argue with that. So we get to, finally, we got to one point where he had a different reaction. And that was this scene that I don't know if you recall, but it's actually a pretty fun scene. So in the movie, they, remember, there's this election for sheriff. And the Leonardo DiCaprio character has decided to run an alternative candidate against Bill the Butcher's candidate to try to wrest control of the Democratic Party in New York from Poole and the nativists. And so he gets the barber to run as the candidate, right? The candidate for sheriff. And the scene shows people, and, and then the scene shows Leonardo DiCaprio and his henchmen going all around the city, rounding up drunks and everybody they can to come and vote for the barber for sheriff. And the scene ends at the polling place. And there's this line of, of voters at the polling place, and they're coming into the polling place. And as it's written in the screenplay, they go into the polling place. There is a There are booths with curtains, and the voters are going into the booth. And then the scene shows a ballot in the booth with the names of the candidates, and the voters are ticking off who they're voting for, either the, the barber or Bill Poole's candidate. And I said, well, this is all wrong. I said, I said, leading up to where they vote is fine. Even having the line is fine. Having them voting in the saloon is actually perfect. But there is no booth, right? The booth is a voting booth don't come for another generation. In those days, you put your, your you voted out in the open, everybody could see, and you didn't tick off a name on a ballot. There was no government issued ballot at the polling place for you. You got your ballot outside the polling place in those days at booths set up by each party. So the Democrats would have a booth outside your voting place listing the candidates, all the candidates for office for that polling place. And if you're a Democrat, you go to the Democratic booth, you would take a ballot and that piece of paper listed all the candidates and you'd take that into the polling place. You would put that piece of paper into a glass bowl and they had a glass bowl because the idea is they wanted to be able to see if you stuff 10 pieces of paper into the bowl instead of one. So you put that piece of paper in. And then the 
party leaders in those days wanted to know who you were going to vote for. So they would do things like color code the ballot so that Democrats might make their ballot blue and the Republicans might make it red. Although actually in those days, blue was not Democrat and red wasn't Republican yet. That's a, that's a modern thing. But you might color code your ballot so that you could see what color ballot a person was bringing into the polls. And then if you uh, what very often happened in rough neighborhoods like Five Points in those days was you would, uh, if you're the Democratic leader, you would post some thugs at the polling place. And if somebody was coming in with a Republican ballot in their hand, the thugs would go to them and say, you don't really want to vote here today, do you? You've got that fine that fine overcoat there and that, that beautiful tie. It would, it would be a shame for those to get mussed up if you went in there and voted, because there are some people in there who really... Are, are angry at, at people who vote Republican and, and they, they might uh, rough you up. And, and so you'd use intimidation to try to keep people from voting. It's a good thing that doesn't happen anymore. It's a pretty good thing that that doesn't happen. But it was, <laughs> it was so common that in, in right, so it, in, voter intimidation is done in other ways, but, but it's not done today with uh, fists, right? It's done with the threat of arrest. But no, that's, that's, Exactly correct. Your your point there that I, I fear may have gone over some people's heads because it started by going over my head is that is that voter intimidation is now legal more than physical. But in those days, it was physical. You will get beaten up. Um, you know, there's a, one of my favorite things from from the late 1850s is a there's a New York Times headline that says something along the lines of a relatively quiet day at the polls, only two people killed. And that was what it was like voting in the 1850s, is you took your life into your hands in, in certain districts if you wanted to vote. So if you're in five points, you've got to be really brave to vote the Republican, to, you know, to vote for Abraham Lincoln in 1860, because that's the kind of thing that could get you hurt. And so what I said to Scorsese, so I explained all this to Scorsese, mm-hmm. there's no booth. You, you put it in a glass bowl. And he says, oh, I can fix that. And he turns to his, his minions. He says, change that. Make it the way he says. And so everything else in our discussion was artistic license. This is an homage, etc. And so the movie comes out three years late after I meet him. And I think, okay. And I watch the movie and it's all the, you know, pretty much the way it was in the screenplay that I had read three years earlier. And finally, we get to the scene. And I think, okay, here's the scene I had an impact on. And we get to the scene. It's not changed at all. It's exactly <laughs> the way it has been in the screenplay. There's still a booth. There's still somebody ticking off a ballot. So, I mean, what I learned is he, you know, for, for all his saying that he doesn't like being known as a, as a historically accurate filmmaker, he, he is a history buff. He is a New York City history buff in particular. He had bookcases, case after case, full of books of the history of New York City. All these primary sources that I had used that are in like the rare book room of the New York Public Library, he owned the actual book in its original leather-bound volume. Are you serious? Yeah. He had just the most fabulous New York City book collection I have ever seen in my life. Um, so he knew all the stuff that was wrong. And, you know, as, as he put it another time to me, he said... You should no more expect to learn history from a movie than you should to learn history from an opera. And I thought, okay, I, I can appreciate that. And so that's how we looked at it. So, but nonetheless, we, 
we historians and we history lovers, uh, we love quite a few of his films. I'm constantly refreshing and revising uh, my favorite films uh, list. And Goodfellas is going to be my favorite Scorsese film till the day I die. I, I think it's a perfect film. Right. And he saw, by the way, he saw Gangs of New York as the prequel to Goodfellas. Did he? he made that very explicit. Right, because he said that the the underlying theme of Goodfellas was that Italians had to, you know, basically fight for, had to, to fight for recognition in America. And to him, you know, organized crime was the way in which they kind of organized their fight for economic, to, to kind of, for economic equality and to have their power recognized. And so he saw Gangs of New York as the prequel that he wanted to make it clear that the Irish had had to do the same thing, that the Irish had had to fight for their rights and had to fight for political power and that it was the way people like the Leonardo DiCaprio character fought against the nativists that they were able to accomplish that. So he saw this as his telling of the saga of the making of America, that minorities like Italian Americans and Irish Americans had always have always throughout American history had to fight for their rights and to fight for recognition as, quote unquote, true Americans. And so he saw both Goodfellas as telling that story and Gangs of New York as telling that story as well. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that, you know, thinking about about both films. And in fact, they, I remember they marketed this film. I think there was a tagline that said something to the effect of America was created in, in the streets or something along those lines that was very much, Correct. you know, very much saying that. Um, as we're kind of coming to a close here, I want to ask you, though, you're talking about Martin, Scor- Martin Scorsese's many books. And we're sitting here talking to you and I, I feel like I'm sitting in here talking to uh Sitting as though I'd be sitting in your office at GW right now, and I see all the books behind you right now. What are your? Can you give me three books that you love on New York? Someone comes into this, listen to the podcast, and I want to go. I want to read Tyler Anbinder's New York. What are three books on New York we should be reading? Do you, do you have favorites? I do. Um, they're kind of an an esoteric bunch. Oh yes. So, you know one one book I love is the. Let's see here. It is the, <laughs> let me look at my shelf here, actually. Please. To see if I'm going to leave anything out. Why don't I start with, actually, some books on cities? So I'd one of the, that. one of the books I love is the, the Bill Cronin book, um, Nature's Metropolis. Um, that was really very inspiring to me to read about how Cronin could look at a city's history in so many different ways. And, and uh, uh, so I thought that that look at, at Chicago was just so fascinating. In terms of, of books about New York City, um, I think one of my favorites, even though it's not, it's not kind of thing that academics would probably use anymore, is the uh, Irving Howe book, World of Our Fathers. I don't know if you know this book. It's a, it was kind of the first big uh, history of the Jewish Lower East Side of New York. And the reason I love that book is because Howe, who's not an academic by training, he was more of a 
kind of a labor activist. He kind of did all sorts of different things, but he was a labor activist and then journalist. And then he wrote this in the published in the early 1970s, this, this history of the Jewish Lower East Side. And it was a very important book in kind of the revival of interest in ethnic history. So it's kind of right at that same time as Alex Haley published Roots. Uh, it began this kind of, you know, so you had this period where, you know, in the Cold War, especially Americans kind of downplayed their ethnic differences. And it was, you know, everyone's American, you know, the continuation of that anti-hyphenism, as it were, from that had started in World War One. But what I love about the How book is it's the storytelling is just great. And, and so so I, I tend to gravitate towards books that have that have great storytelling. Another book I, I really like a lot is, uh, and I'm just going to grab it off my shelf right here, is this book by a, a historian in Boston at UMass Boston named uh, Vincent Canato, which is called American Passage, which is a history of, of Ellis Island. Um, and it looks at Ellis Island kind of in every aspect. So it's got its social history there kind of, of, what it was like going through Ellis Island, but it's also legal history, which is a lot of Ellis Island's history because that's the place where people were turned away from America. So he's got that. And then a lot of American political history is, is fought there. And so it's, it's got that as well, you know, as, as views changed about immigrants, it's plays out in Ellis Island. And then uh, nativism is, story is very important there because that's the place where, you know, immigrants who were considered a, a threat during various wars were, were especially World War II, were imprisoned there before they were deported. It's where Emma Goldman is sent before she's deported. Uh, so and it's where Italian and Germans who were suspected of being uh, spies were imprisoned before they were deported. So it's got Ellis Island has a much richer history than than I had known. Yeah, just so I, so I, I'm moving. You, you, those of you listening to the podcast can't see it. So, so all those books there that that now uh, Jason can see, all mm-hmm. those books are New York City history books, and those aren't even all the books oh on God. New York City. So, uh, so it's really hard. It's really hard for me to choose. No, I, I'm so glad you, you talked about Bill Cronin because I actually have two copies of Nature's, Nature's Metropolis about, about a foot and a half away, out of my arm's reach right now. I can, I've got it on my environmental history shelves uh, over here. I actually right had a really – so I actually had a really interesting conversation with him a few years ago. I, I actually – when I was department chair at George Washington University, I was able to invite him to come talk – and he gave a talk about this project he was working on on Portage, Wisconsin. I don't know if you've heard about this project he was he's been working mm, on. So I it was this it. history of Portage, Wisconsin, as because so I had never known this. The reason Portage got its name is because it was this place where you would portage your canoe from what was it from the Mississippi River to what's the other river there? I can't. Well, there's can't the Lacroix, which is uh, between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right. So it was kind of the way you went from from kind of the portage was kind of this this place where you could transit from the eastern United States to the western United States and how it had played this role, this kind of central role as this 
kind of space between the two throughout um, American history. And so it was this fat, it was like the best talk I have ever seen anyone give in my life. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be the greatest book. And that's already more than 15 years ago. And so I saw him at a conference a couple of years ago and I just went up to him and said, what, what happened to your book uh, on Portage? Because it sounds so great. And he's, what he said to me was so interesting, I think, for any historian to think about or anyone who even likes reading history. And he said, he said yeah, I'm, I'm just totally stuck. And I said, what are you stuck on? And he said, I'm stuck on the I. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the I in the book. He said, I wanted, he said, I wanted to have my own voice. I wanted to be able to say I this, I that uh, in the book, but... He said, when I did that in Nature's Metropolis, a lot of a lot of people didn't like that. And they criticized that, that I had put myself into the book, that it was kind of egotistical to do that. And so he said, I tried to write the Portage book without the I, but he said, I just don't love it without the I. And so I'm kind of stuck and don't know what to do. And so I've moved on to other things. And I thought it was just first all of us as as scholars, whether we write articles or books or whether we aspire to, I mean, to think of a someone as renowned as as Bill Cronin, right? Thank President you. of every single of every single uh, historical organization you could want to be the head of, stuck because of this of a narrative question, a question of how you frame your work, how you place yourself in your scholarship. I thought that was just so fascinating that somebody who I thought, oh, this this must be the most self-confident person alive to write these books with self such self-assurance and su- such you know bravado even really. And for this person to be stuck for years because of a question of narrative voice, I just thought was really fascinating. I find it oddly reassuring that if Bill Cronin can be struggling with a narrative question, so can I, Jason Herbert, you know? So can any of us. So can oh my any of goodness, us. Yes. Uh, I, I have, oh my gosh. I could ask you so many questions today um, about books and technique. Here. Can you hear this cat meowing? Cats are welcome here at the HATM okay. podcast. I can hear your cat if you're willing to disclose said cat's name. Uh, and I guess maybe that answers the question if you're a cat or a dog person. I am a big cat person. We have cats. two cats. They are siblings. They were they were fostered by our neighbor, and this is Shumai. Shumai, unfortunately, um, for some reason these days, is very demanding of attention, <laughs> but also very shy. And so, if I'm like doing a, like if I'm doing a Zoom class or something mm-hmm. or a lecture, Shumai will. Oh, now she's run away. Shumai will both run in and demand attention, but then when she hears me using my outdoor voice. She runs and hides. So she was actually just now meowing inside my, so I have a couch in my office here. She goes inside the couch, not on the couch, not under the couch, but inside the couch and then meows for attention. <laughs> but now she's gone and she's, uh, she sees I'm busy. And so she's left. I've got an 11 year old cat that goes with my 11 year old son. Uh, but I had adopted him as a seven-year-old cat that had been at the shelter for a year, and I, I, I oh my goodness, I've got a soft spot for old for old animals, and I felt like that was one that was not going to get loved, and I adopted him, 
And then as you were talking about Bill Cronin, my 16-week-old puppy that I got on Sunday decided to come in and chew on my hand. This is the first time <laughs> I've had in years. He's like a cruise missile with a mouth attached right now. It's the best way I could. He just runs around looking for something to, something to gnaw upon. But that's kind of standard for a black lab, I suppose. Well, Shumai and her brother are very interesting because Shumai is shy and does not like being touched very much. Mm-hmm. And her brother, Max, the one-eyed cat, is an attention hog and wants, you know, I'll be sitting here as I am now at my desk. And if I'm looking at something on the screen, Max will jump on my desk, plant himself in front of the screen and say, you must look at me, not whatever is on that screen. <laughs> and then we'll jump on my lap. And if I continue to work, we'll jump back up in, in front of the screen to prevent me from doing so. And so they're brother and sister, but one is black, one is white. One is very in your face. One is very shy, but there, I love them. I have a, uh, a postcard of Ernest Hemingway that I picked up at the Hemingway house in Key West. And it's him sitting at a desk with his pen and pen, pencil in hand. Cause he always wrote, you know, uh, long form in, in pencil and his cat is in his damn way. Uh, the whole, you know, as he's trying to write. And I oh, thought that so was funny. kind of, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a perfect thing uh, for him as a writer. Um, all right. I want to ask you the, the maybe the last big question here for us uh, today. Gangs in New York. Is this a history movie? Well, I think it is and it isn't. I think, though, overall, though, I think it is a history movie in the sense that the theme of the movie, as we just talked about, is a historical one, that it talks about the way that historically power has been wielded and gained and lost in America and that that's always been a a fraught process and a contentious process and that people don't give up power easily and 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 also it's I think a really useful historical movie in the sense that people's definitions of America have been constantly changing and yet at the same time you know what Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York is trying to do is is very similar to what a lot of Americans today are trying to do. There, there is a belief that that America is changing for the worse, and that the people who are changing it are not "quote unquote" real Americans. Right? That's exactly what I don't know that Bill the Butcher uses that phrase in Gangs of New York, but that's exactly what he's saying: is these people, these Irish, can never be real Americans. And therefore, we can't let them have any power at all, because if we let them have any, America itself will be destroyed. That's been a theme throughout American history, this belief that there is some group that will change America for the worse forever. But, you know, as an immigration historian, what I can say confidently is Americans have always thought that every single group that comes to America, with the exception of the English, English have been the only exception, but every other group that's come to America, the people already in America have said, oh, that group, that group won't do. That group will ruin America. And when you point out to them, well, you know, what you're saying about this new group is exactly what the previous generation said about your group. People say, oh, well, that's not right at all. Or, well, they were wrong in that case, but I'm right now. But every generation has believed that the latest immigrants will 
ruin America. And yet every immigrant group has eventually become part of the American fabric. And so I think in that way, the gangs of New York is, is very much a, a history movie and, and one with an important theme. I love it. That, uh, as you were telling me, the thunder here in South Florida just started to roll ominously in talking about this idea of nativism still here in the United States today. Um, your new book's coming out in March, that's correct? March 2024? Yes, the week of St. Patrick's Day 2024. And the interactive website is available now for people to go on to? Yes, so the, the website that that has a lot of the documents upon which the book is based and it has inter- an interactive map and it, it's got lots of great stuff that you can use with your students if you teach, uh, if you want to teach some stuff on Irish immigrant history. Uh, that website is beyondragstoriches.org. And then the book, the book coming out next year is called Plentiful Country, The Great Famine and the Making of Irish New York. Awesome. Tyler Ambider, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I have been I was I have been looking forward to talking to you about this as long as I can remember. Like once we started talking about that, I was so excited to be able to sit down and talk to you. And I think folks are just gonna love this conversation. Um let's do this again once uh, once the book comes out. We'll pick another stuff. If you want to talk about another film or something like that, or just talk about the book, I would love to to do that then. So I can't thank you enough for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap here at Historians of the Movies Podcast. Thank you so much again to our guest today, Dr. Tyler Anbinder, for sitting in, taking the time. Uh, Tyler, I could have sat and listened to you talk for four or five hours, and I cannot wait to do that again uh, when your new book, Plentiful Country, The Great Potato Famine and the Making of Irish New York, shows up next March. Thank you, of course, to our intrepid producer Fletcher Powell, who I don't think has any Irish roots, but maybe we should do something Gangs of Wichita at some point in time. So you can find our producer Fletcher underscore Powell at Twitter and other places where you find your social media nonsense. We could not literally make this show without him. And of course, most importantly of all, thank you guys for being here. By the time you're listening to this, we have done five years of HATM. That means the world to me. And thank you for sticking with this and being part of this. And I am so grateful for your support. Uh, if you want, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. You can share it with your friends. You can share it on Twitter. Just share it on social media. That's how we grew uh, HATM. Uh, let's continue growing it this way. I want to get this out there. I want to get this pod building. I know it's finding its legs and it's exciting. And it's exciting because your enthusiasm for it. So thank you so much for continuing to be part of it. You can find me on social media at Herbert History pretty much anywhere you want. You can also find our historiansofthemovies.com or also on the Historians of the Movies Instagram page. It has every single film we've ever done. So if you're just like, hey, have you ever done Trading Places? Have you ever done this or whatever? Absolutely. And continue to send in to me uh, references for folks you'd like to have on the podcast Movies. I don't know all the. I don't know all the scholars out there. I'm. I'd like to think I know a lot of folks, but I don't know everybody. So if there's somebody that's like, oh, I would love to hear this person talk about this movie or this work, please do let me know. I am all ears on that. So again, thank you all so much for being part of this. Love what we're building together. Let's keep doing it. Ciao for now. Bye. <laughs>